0: Good morning and welcome to the Dodds Monitoring Podcast. Each week, our team of Dodds policy experts will bring you these short 15-20 to 20 minute audio briefings on a range of subjects and sectors, helping you to understand the policy behind the politics. The tragic death of Sarah Everard has sparked the nation's soul-searching, as women across the country have opened up about their own experiences of walking the streets and the lengths they go to to feel safe. This has brought into sharp focus the government's violence against women's and girls strategy. The policing of the vigil to mourn the death of Sarah Everard on Clapham Common has instigated another conversation about how mass gatherings should be policed during the pandemic. Alongside this though, attention has inevitably been drawn to the Government's Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill, which many have claimed seeks to restrict the right to protest beyond the pandemic. The focus on violence against women has also drawn attention to another piece of legislation making its way through Parliament, the Domestic Abuse Bill. I'm Dean Sabri and joining me this morning to discuss these very important issues is Dodds' Head of Political Intelligence Laura Hutchinson and Policy Expert Alexandra Ming. Thank you both. Laura, if I can come to you first. The Home Office brought forward the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill. It seems to have divided politicians and the country itself. With various kill Kill the Bill protests erupting in major cities, can you talk us through what the bill actually tries to do and why is it so contentious?
1: Hi, Dean. Yes, of course. Um, So the bill is a very big bit of government legislation and it contains major changes in terms of crime and justice matters in England and Wales. So it does things like it amends um, police powers and fulfills important conservative commitments, such as reporting annually on work to uphold a police covenant Um, It makes changes that the police have been waiting for for quite a long time, including amending the Road Traffic Act to ensure that trained police drivers are no longer um, compared to regular drivers for offences relating to dangerous driving, for example. And it extends the existing um, position of trust offence in the Sexual Offences Act to cover roles in sport and religious settings. So that's something we've been hearing a lot about in the news recently. Um, In terms of justice matters, it requires courts to impose minimum sentences for certain repeat offences, unless there are sort of exceptional circumstances that would make it unjust to do so. Um, For the purposes of the podcast, I can't really run through all the changes. Um, As I said, it's a very big bit of legislation. Um, But those are just a few. Um, And the important thing to stress really is that it is a very significant bill. Um, It is a bill that fulfills conservative manifesto pledges and it is a bill which many particularly police forces have been waiting for for quite some time um however you are also correct in saying that it is a very contentious bill so the shadow justice secretary david lammy has actually described it as uh, and i quote a mess um and there's a couple of reasons really why why the bill is providing divisive um before I run through them, I just um, thought it was important to note that when the bill had its second reading, which is um, you know its first proper debate in the Commons, this happened immediately after the, the shocking murder of Sarah Everard and the incident that followed with regards to the policing of the vigil at Clapham Commons. So when we're talking about the criticism of the bill, just sort of bear that context in mind as it, as it is happening at a time when, as you rightly said in your introduction, we're engaged in this sort of national discussion around violence against women and girls. So uh, with that in mind, one of the criticisms of the bill is that it does not do enough to address male violence against women and girls. So under the bill, people convicted of certain sexual offenses uh, for between four and seven years will only be eligible for release after two thirds of their sentences. Um, At the moment, it's halfway through Um, The bill will also place a legal duty on police and the local authorities to come up with a joint action plan to tackle serious violence. Um, However, Labour leader Keir Starmer has said that there was nothing actually meaningful in the bill to protect women. And uh, Labour is saying uh, that under the bill, someone could receive a longer term for attacking a statue than they would get for raping someone. Uh, with the sentence for a statue being up to 10 years in prison and rape uh, convictions starting at five years. It's very, very important to stress, obviously, that starting at five years does not mean that five years is the maximum sentence. Um, But there is significant concern that the bill is a a missed opportunity to do something substantial with regards to women's safety. Um, The other very big criticism of the bill... And the one that is behind a lot of the protests that we're seeing, most notably in Bristol, uh, is around part three and part four of the bill, which focuses on public order. So the bill amends the powers given to the police in the Public Order Act 1986, and it allows them to impose conditions on protests that are loud enough to cause intimidation or harassment or serious unease, alarm or distress. It also does uh, a number of other things uh, with regards to sort of expanding the controlled area around Parliament. And it includes an offence for um, intentionally or recklessly causing public nuisance. And there's that statue offence as well that I mentioned earlier. Um, So the conditions being made available to the police will be the ability to impose start and finish times on protests, set noise limits and apply these rules to a demonstration Uh, of just one person, um, which I feel has been inserted by a member of Civil 7 who was really fed up with that stop Brexit man from outside Parliament, if you remember him. Um, But there are a number of penalties, including fines, if if the measures aren't followed. So the government and various police chiefs, they argue that these measures are necessary. And uh, the case that's often cited is the Extinction Rebellion demonstration in 2019, which I'm sure you remember caused mass occupation of roads and bridges and public transport uh, in London and and was very disruptive. Um, However, as you rightly said in in your uh, question, there is significant concern that these measures in the bill will impact on the right to protest that is enshrined in the Human Rights Act. And there are a lot of people saying that it gives the police too many powers to decide which protests can be allowed to go ahead. Um, So the The central issue really is around police discretion um so allowing them to apply this discretion to protest you know and decide what noise is too loud and what constitutes a serious unease and to whom and you know how is one person's right to protest weighed up against another person's right to live life without serious unease for example um And I think this sort of need for clear definitions and concern around police discretion has been underlined in the health restrictions around the coronavirus and uh, the provision in particular for protests and those. So with the vigil on Clapham Common a couple of weeks ago, you saw all this unfold where the police were saying that, um, you know, a vigil gathering or protest, it was called quite a, a lot of things, was illegal and then uh, the events unfolded throughout the evening as uh, individuals clashed clashed with police on the common um so under the restrictions coming in on March the 29th so th- so this coming Monday there is a specific exemption for protest um but the vague and non-specific language in the old restrictions put police in in a very difficult sort of impossible position really where they were having to define Things within the restrictions that weren't that obvious so you know if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic they were having to decide you know what does local mean for example and um they were having to decide in this example whether the restrictions actually uh sort of banned protests or whether there was an exemption or whether the government meant for there to be an exemption around protests um so with this uh policing bill there is concern amongst some that the language on what protests are and are not acceptable is again too subjective you know it's too vague and uh, would perhaps benefit from a you know an independent adjudicator or or more specific criteria um around this um but the bill is at the moment in the committee stage um sorry as works well, with the with a uh, bill committee um and they're expected to report back on Thursday the 24th of June so There's a there's a bit of delay here because of the upcoming recess uh, for Easter. And we've obviously got the prorogation of Parliament coming up with the state opening of a new parliament as well in May. Um, So it will undoubtedly have a a bumpy ride when it gets back. Uh, It's very unlikely that it wouldn't eventually pass uh, because of the government majority. But um, I would expect a a lot of amendments with this one.
0: Thank you, Laura. That's, that's so much detail there. And I, I thank you very much for raising those um, those problems that a lot of people have with the bill uh, going through. And um, I will say that it probably will be a shame to not see individuals like Steve Bray anymore. Um, but at the same time, I think um, there are some important amendments going through. So we'll see how that develops. You've mentioned there about the the power that the police will have um, to exercise their own um, interpretations of, of the bill at the moment um, and what going on during the coronavirus act so what are the police saying on this bill at the moment and what measures are the home office and the police themselves taking to try and restore public trust especially amongst women
1: well done for remembering steve's name i couldn't couldn't remember that um so the police forces don't speak with one collective voice but uh they are largely very welcoming of the bill um so the Police Federation in England and Wales have welcomed it uh, as it includes measures that they have been campaigning on specifically such as the creation of the police covenant and the clauses in the bill that legislate to double the maximum sentences for those convicted of, of assaulting emergency workers in England and Wales to two years um, and the measures on police drivers as well that I mentioned earlier that's actually something the police have been campaigning on for you know almost a decade. Um, so they are very broadly, very welcoming of the bill. Um, there's consensus that it's long overdue in many regards. Um, and there is um, many are sort of very hopeful that it will bring about positive change and provide better support for police forces and officers. Um, in terms of, of public trust, uh, especially uh, around women that you mentioned um I think firstly it's important to stress uh, again that the police have been in many ways placed in a, in a no-win situation re- with regards to policing during the pandemic. Um, there is this complexity and this vagueness of the health restrictions, um, but they've also had to turn their hand to policing public health, you know, and they've had to adapt very quickly and often very last minute to, to the changes that have been sort of put put forward in Parliament. Um That being said, though, there is no doubt that the events surrounding Sarah Everard's murder and the events on Clapham Common, um, as well as some policing in the aftermath, including reports of police knocking on doors in Clapham and telling women to stay indoors, you know, these incidences have have dented public trust. Um, So there are a number of independent inquiries running into the events surrounding Clapham Common. So there may be recommendations in the conclusions uh, of these where the police, uh, which the police can take forward, um, and, and for obvious reasons I can't talk about uh, the Sarah Everard case specifically, but the Home Affairs Select Committee have also launched two inquiries. Uh, so one is into violence against women and girls, and the other inquiry is into policing of last weekend's so, well. The Clapham Common Vigil, um, a couple of weeks ago, which, um, both of which are likely to provide recommendations for the police and the and the Home Office as well. Um. Prior to these inquiries concluding, though, the government have, um, confirmed that they will double the Safer Streets Fund to forty five million pounds, um, and this is a fund that provides streets with better lighting and and CCTV. Um, They've also made a commitment to working with police forces and police and crime commissioners to ensure that uh, targeted areas of potential concern for women and girls are now more focused on preventing sexual violence. So this could include things like, um, you know, targeting parks and alleyways and routes from bars, restaurants and nightclubs when they reopen. Um, And they're also rolling out pilots of a project called Project Vigilant, uh, which I think you probably will have heard of. This is um initially it was approached uh, taken by Thames Valley police um uh, but it centres around officers attending areas um around bars and clubs undercover um and increasing patrols as people leave at clo- closing time so there is a lot of criticism around that pilot specifically uh, which i won't go into uh, in this podcast um but there is concern, essentially, that it doesn't—it fails to deal with the root causes of uh, violence against women and girls or sexual um, assault. But uh, the government are also conducting um, an end-to-end review of the prosecution of rape cases uh, to ensure that, and I quote, every part of the criminal justice system is set up to bring perpetrators to justice and protect victims. And they've also done a number of things already, like they've accepted a peers amendment around the domestic abuse bill, which I'm sure we'll hear from Alex uh, a lot more on, um, that basically they're now going to advise all police to collect data on offences which were motivated by misogyny. So this was commonly referred to as the the misogyny amendment. Um, They're also developing a violence against women and girls strategy, which will be published uh, later this year as well. So there's quite a lot of Uh, proposals and initiatives going on and I expect we will get a lot more in terms of recommendations once the various inquiries have concluded Um, however none of this obviously is a quick fix and the issue of male violence and sort of ingrained misogyny doesn't have a silver bullet and um, it will require continued concerted intensive um, work and and in some cases I think institutional change as well
0: Thank you very much, Laura. You've you've raised some really interesting points there about what the Home Office are looking to do and some of the measures that the police are taking themselves. Alex, if I can come to you now, um, as I said earlier, in light of recent events, another government bill which has received a lot of attention over the past few weeks has been the domestic abuse bill. Can you give us an update on that bill and maybe run through some of the key changes and some of the sticking points?
2: Hi both and Dean, thanks for your question. So yes, as you said, the domestic abuse bill has received a lot of attention over the fa- past few weeks. So the bill has always been an important piece of legislation with the Conservative government having been elected in 2019 with a promise to pass the bill standing as part of their manifesto. It's been touted numerous times as being a once in a generation chance to really shift gear in how domestic abuse is approached and understood in the UK. So as Laura set out, violence against women and girls has very much been at the forefront of social and political consciousness over the past few weeks. And with the circumstances of Sarah Everard's murder and the explosion really of domestic abuse over the course of the pandemic, the bill's taken on much greater urgency at every stage of its passage. So on the legislation itself, yesterday was the third reading of the domestic abuse bill in the House of Lords, where it's passed and so now it's been sent back to the House of Commons for consideration of amendments. It means we're almost at the last stretch and the hope is that the bill should gain royal assent in the spring. There could still be a few bumps on the road however, which really relates to the second part of your question about some of the changes and the sticking points. So going through the report stage in the Lords, there are a number of significant changes made to the bill through amendment and three of which were tabled by the government. So we know these changes will definitely start stand as part of the bill when it passes into law. They relate to making a new offence of non-fatal strangulation, expanding the offence of controlling and coercive behaviour so it covers circumstances where the perpetrator and the victim don't live together anymore. And finally there's a new amendment which would also make an offence of where perpetrators threaten to share revenge porn as a means of abuse. So these are significant changes and as was commented on a number of times during the third reading yesterday, the amendments are like a really good example of where cross-party collaboration works in the House of Lords in particular and where the input of the back benches you know, really came to fruition to make some proper changes. Prior to this, and in the final few days of the report stage though, you were able to see how intensity on the debate was turned up quite a few notches, particularly on different sticking points that have come out up throughout the Bill's passage. And there were a number of amendments which the government didn't accept, but after being pushed through a division, won a majority and so have been added to the bill. And, you know, I guess we'll see if these changes remain a part of it now that is back in the comments. I'll rattle through a few of these um, more quickly as there were quite a few. So a few relate to migrant women who, due to having no recourse to public funds, would otherwise not have been able to access services relating to domestic abuse. Debate on this issue has been constant throughout the passage of the bill and of the successful amendments that report, um, there's one which relates to the protection of victims of abuse, regardless of status. And this is really important because it, if passed, it would mean that the UK were finally able to ratify the Istanbul Convention on the prevention of violence against women and girls. The other what new amendments relating to um, migrants um, talk about the sharing of immigration data and also about um, the provision of indefinite leave to remain for victims of abuse so that they would be able to um, resolve their immigration status for I think that it was a minimum of six months or so so that they were able to just you know remain in situ after escaping their abusive partner. So. The other um, new amendments which passed because of um, being put to a vote are uh, relate to online pornography, creating a register of serial perpetrators, um, child contact centres, training for judges and there are a couple of amendments which look at protecting women who might have to use force and self, um, self-defence against their abuser or be coerced into committing a crime. Oh and uh, there's also another big sticking point that's come up time and again which relates to who counts in the definition of being personally connected in the definition of abuse. So the amendment that passed and would mean that a carer of a disabled person would count within that definition. So yeah, quite a few changes, a number of which it's unsure, you know, what their status will actually be after um, they've gone through the Commons again but the fact that they're still there in conversation means that there's a chance they could pass.
0: Thank you Alex. A few of them the amendments that you've mentioned such as the new offence of non-fatal strangulation and the widening of that revenge porn offence weren't originally part of the bill. So how do you think some of these changes as well as the passage of the bill more, bro- more broadly speaking how could that tie into how domestic abuse is approached moving forwards?
2: I think that's a really interesting question and in some ways kind of relates to what you could see as the dual function of a bill like the Domestic Abuse Bill. So firstly, there's a practical aspect of the bill which would in the immediate term help victims of abuse access support. So the bill in its original drafting, for example, was always going to do things like place a duty on local authorities to provide safe accommodation to victims, change how victims and perpetrators had to interact in the court system, and protect victims by creating um, the new Domestic Abuse Protection Notice and Order. So, you know, these are solid market changes which local government and public bodies would need to make so they can help victims and charge perpetrators. Same goes with some of the newer changes um, that are smaller and more nuanced, um, I guess, such as the offence, as you said, relating to non-fatal strangulation, because it. It will have a concrete effect in how it will make more clear cut the route to prosecution and therefore help protect victims who otherwise might have fallen through the gaps. And you know, actually, I think the expansion of the definition of personally connected in relation to. Um, to people who don't live together is really important here because, you know, in, when it's already so difficult often for a person to leave an abusive relationship, there's going to otherwise be apprehension that you're not going to be taken seriously perhaps if you go to the police. And we know that often abuse escalates after someone leaves a relationship. So it's really important to actually protect victims. And so, but well, I guess when I mentioned earlier that dual function of a bill, I guess it's also thinking about how Something like the Domestic Abuse Bill could help steer some of the broader conversation and understanding of what domestic abuse is. It's one of the reasons why there's been so much um, emphasis on the definition of abuse and the fact that it includes forms of harm beyond physical violence such as controlling or coercive behaviour or specifically economic abuse and you know there were again a, a few parts to this and I think that you know when thinking of, from a social policy perspective about normative change the hope is that the definition and smaller changes to the bill will help empower victims of abuse so that when they have experienced domestic abuse they can know that and they can feel more confident actually reaching out to the police which is really important to our kind of social understanding of what domestic abuse is and you know, there's also the wider shift where the bill could achieve. I guess going back to what Laura was talking earlier about violence against women and girls. You know, I think over the past few weeks, there's been a good deal of commentary recognising how disempowering language around abuse to women often is. So you know, violence against women instead of male violence against women. And so with the bill tying into this certain aspects could have kind of sought to address this particularly in the amendments that have passed at lords and you know need to be decided on so when it takes something like non-fatal strangulation or um the perpetrator strategy these are things that really kind of try to look at how misogyny and male violence in society links specifically to the issue of domestic abuse so that it can try to address in the longer term some of the generation generational deep root causes of domestic abuse as well as just protecting women after instances of abuse and yeah as laura mentioned as well on the misogyny amendment which so it was it was withdrawn but the government did promise that they would have police bodies actually start recording this and you know i think this is where one of the like most clear examples of where um, a piece of legislation like the domestic abuse bill has the kind of protect um proactive practical side and the more normative social side to it because it does seek to actually change the way police collect information but it also helps looks to actually trying to shift conversation understanding of what domestic abuse is as you know predominantly a problem of male violence against women not just a case of violence against women.
0: Thank you, Alex. And you've raised a really important point there about um, the way the government are going to start instructing police forces to uh, record um, misogyny as a hate crime and following on from Nottingham Police Force. Um, yeah, and I remember a lot of the debate around the uh, domestic abuse bill in the House of Lords recently has been about the gendered nature of abuse and um, it's really good that the, the government are now going to take that as a consideration as part of the bill. Um, all there's left now for me to do is to thank you both so much for joining me today and for breaking down a lot of the issues involved. It does seem like there's plenty to watch out for in the Police and Crime Bill and it sounds like there's been some really interesting developments on the Domestic Abuse Bill. So. Remember, if you're not already a Dodds Monitoring client and you think you or your business could benefit from getting up-to-date, tailored and cutting-edge political intelligence, then you can request a free trial by emailing customer.service at doddsgroup.com or calling us on 0207 593 5500.